Welcome, welcome, welcome everybody to another installment of Workplace Therapy. My name's Scott Arietta. I'm the founder and CEO of Unity and Company. We're a consulting firm that leverages a strategic understanding of human experiences to help organizations unlock best-in-class business performance. I'm joined by my co-host, Skylar Lewandowski. She's our director of special programs at Unity and Company. And today... We have been buzzing to have our two guests, KDP uh, Desiderio and Michael G. Frino, the authors of The Beekeeper, Pollinating Your Organization for Transformative Growth. Um, Katie started out her career in corporate marketing, where she found her passion for fostering collaboration and entrepreneurial spirit, which led her to a second career in higher education. She became the first female chairperson of the economics and business department at Moravian University, which is the sixth oldest institution in America and the first to educate women. Today, she serves as a tenured professor at the university where she focuses her teaching and research on optimizing human performance at work, employee engagement, organizational citizenship behaviors, and flow at work. Katie holds several titles, including an MBA from Wilkes University and a doctorate in organizational learning and leadership from Barry University, and is a mom to two extraordinary girls. Um, she and Michael are learning partners and frequent co-authors of journals and articles, and now this book. Um, which leads me to Michael. Michael has a background in writing and storytelling, publishing his first poem in 1993 and creating a beloved children's book series, Welcome to Way Cool School. But Michael's talents and interests extend far beyond writing. With over 20 years of professional experience in sales, leadership, and organizational development, he's worked with Fortune 500 companies across various industries, including payroll and human resources, pharmaceuticals, and med tech. Today, Michael finds his flow state by helping organizations transform transform their culture, and focusing on the growth and development of individuals. He obtained his MBA from NSU and has a PhD in organizational learning and leadership from Barry University. And through his work, he has embraced opportunities to assist individuals, groups, and organizations in reaching their highest potential. Um, and Katie and Mike, I just want to say we are so excited and privileged to have the both of you um, on the show. Thank you for making the time to be here with us. Yes, yeah, Scott, thank you to you and Skylar for inviting us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So first question, just for some background for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about what The Beekeeper is about um, and what inspired you to write it? Yeah, so I, I could take this and Mike can certainly chime in. Um, Mike and I, as you mentioned in our intro, uh, we went through our doctoral program together, uh, kind of starting our work in, you know, organizational learning and leadership. And we went on to write and publish in the scholarly space, really looking at human performance at work, right? How do we encourage ongoing learning and growth in developing leaders? And we came to this place where, you know, we'd been publishing for over a decade um, in my consulting space and in the work I do at the university with adult students. Uh, we started to see over the last few years kind of the impetus of storytelling resonating with people. And so, as you mentioned in Mike's bio, right, he has this background in kind of creative writing and, you know, really thinking about how we can bring, um, you know, seemingly theoretical things uh, to very kind of, you know, usable, actionable ways. And so we started talking about, should we think about a book? Um, 
And we were literally in Chicago for, for business for different reasons, uh, probably, you know, 30 minutes apart from each other. And we're like, we hadn't seen each other in a while. We live thousands of miles apart. Let's get together for dinner and start to think about what's our next thing. Like, what, what are we going to work on? And, you know, over this dinner, we literally started talking about bees right? and how bees are pollinators and kind of bringing this extension of our work that had, you know, previously been in the scholarly space to kind of more this practitioner's use, but using mm -hmm. storytelling really as a guide. And so um, we kind of mapped out on the back of a pizza box, like, you know, about pollinators and about growth and, you know, potentially what this book could look like and how users at all levels, and we're even thinking, you know, children, right? My, my children have read the book, right? And so we're looking at people at all stages in their life, but there's an impetus there of like, you know, people often misperceive leadership, that leadership is about position or power, and it's not, right? We have the ability to lead from every seat. We have the ability to pollinate, right? To help the world grow no matter where we are on our journey. And so this kind of drove, uh, you know, our uh, kind of inspiration and purpose to create something that was usable, right? But something that people can take and, and open to interpretation, right? In the undertone of you choose who and how you want to be, we're inviting you to go on a journey, right? To help pollinate. So Mike, do you want to add anything to it? Yeah, just, uh, just, just building on that. Like we met on May 2nd, like in Chicago for that pizza, um, it was, it was very, you know, clear in our, our mind because 18 days later and talk about like universe moments, like we found out that it was world B day sponsored by the UN, which is where they kind of focus on, you know, the sustainability of, of our world and how bees play important roles. So, you know, we had this pizza box, you know, kind of some, some ideas. And then we hit our newsfeed that is world B day. And, and we were just like, this is, this is the route we got to go. And meant to be, yeah, it was meant to be for sure. For sure. <laughs> And storytelling was important. You know, we, we always have thought that, you know, when you walk by an airport or a bookstore and you can grab a book and just pick it up and, and read it and not put it down. Um, that's what we wanted to kind of get out of the book versus, you know, a business book that, that may take, you know, a, a few months to read and, you know, you read chapter by chapter. And uh, so we wanted to kind of get that, that, uh, that feel where someone could grab it and just not want to put it down. And that's kind of why I went with the, the leadership fable um, kind of concept versus a traditional business book. Um, it actually did start, you know, when we started talking about writing a book um, a while ago, um, before the, the, the pizza moment, um, you know, we did think about writing a, a business book, a traditional business book, and, and wanted to go that route. But uh, just too many, too many things happened at that, at that dinner where we just started um, brainstorming and mapping out what, what the fable could look like. So it worked. I love it. And did you do the very Midwestern thing of putting honey on the crust of your pizza to like add to the beekeeping spirit? Oh my goodness. I'm going to have to try that now. <laughs> I love that. I will tell you though, Skylar, um, you know, Mike and I are just at the core of our being. We're researchers. It's just like, you know, we're so curious. And when we decided to go the bee route, we started researching like with, you know, beekeepers and we learned so much about honey and the health benefits of honey that I literally have all kinds of shapes and sizes of raw honey in my house now. So I'll just have to try it on pizza. <laughs> That's great. Um, that was actually a question I had for y'all is like, um, I love that you guys chose to write this in the form of a leadership fable. 
right? Because I think as somebody who's read a lot of business books, I can tell you that there is this there's this point of fatigue that you get to, no matter how interested you are in the subject, right? Where another business book just sounds like the worst possible thing. And, you know, normally when I get to that point, I'm like, I'm going to switch to fiction for a month or two, you know? But what I love about your guys' book is that it kind of feels like the best of both worlds. You know, I feel like you guys have written the narrative form in such a beautiful and descriptive way. And so it really transports the reader to the environment that you guys have created. And I won't give too much of it away. Um, But you do a really great job of interweaving this like metaphor of, you know, bees and like the, the way that they're, um, they are organized in the way that they, uh, they interact with each other as a community and like leadership and the responsibilities of leadership. And so, um, Mike, I just think that, you know, if your goal was to create a book that was a fast read that you couldn't put down, that was also edifying. Like, I think you guys kind of really hit the bullseye on that one, but it does bring a question for me because throughout the book, there are a lot of metaphors about the way that kind of these B societies, colonies, I'm struggling to find the right word, Mm -hmm. right? But the way that these, um, these beehives like operate and I really kind of wonder like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did you guys get really, really smart about bees after you decided to write the book or did you already know a ton about them and know that there was a lot of transferable lessons there? Yeah, Mike, do you want to take it? I I mean, I think we can both probably chime in. You know, it's uh, because Haiti mentioned we're kind of researchers. We we had this concept and felt we would do the book a disservice if we didn't go and kind of experience um, it ourselves and really immerse ourselves in in, in the beekeeper mm. community. And, um, you know, so, so yeah, it was kind of the, the idea came first, the World Bee Day came second, and then us booking time with different beekeepers across the country to learn and learn about their hives and what they do to keep their hive thriving. Um, was really the the third piece of that. And then the writing, you know, really kind of came from that. A lot of note taking, a lot of writing and uh, a lot of learning. Yeah. And there's, there's pictures, right. With us in full beekeeper suits um, (laughs) with our right hands in hives, understanding just the interplay of how these bees work, right. Of the role of the queen of, you know, like the, the, we really wanted to kind of get in there. I think, um, Mike has the bee stings <laughs> to prove it, right? Um, of some of these I was going to ask that. I was like, did anybody get stung? <laughs> he did in his last in his last visit. To it wasn't until the book launched that I got stung. Like we launched the book. <laughs> I, I went to like, you know, give a book to one of the beekeepers that met with us, and uh, I was helping her, and you know, I got like five or six stings. They were pretty bad, but. I'm not allergic. I knew that, so thank God. But, that's your christening. Um, yeah, that's my christening <laughs> for sure. And Katie, I know that this is kind of a first like big book publishing for both of you. Mike, you've you've done some writing before, and I know that you both have done a lot of academic research publishing. But Katie, how was this experience of being like a first time author of a published book? So Skylar, I'm actually still talking about this because, you know, I go into meetings and people are just so enamored, right? For one reason or another, right? They're like, oh my gosh, your book. Oh, wow. You got Wall Street Journal bestseller. You got, and I still, Mike and I are still processing. We're like, oh my gosh, we can't believe it. But in the spirit of that, I think it's because we are 
learners, the, the book publishing process really kind of reminded us of why we do the work we do. Right. So mm -hmm. seemingly people would look at us and say like, you're experts, right? You have a doctorate in this area, but, but I think when we look at the world, we're like, how do we show up with beginner's mind to just continue to learn? And the book publishing process really encourages you to do that, right? It's a humbling process. You know so much about an academic space, but oh my goodness, we didn't know a lot about bees and we didn't know a lot about book publishing. We didn't know about book marketing, right? So the learning and kind of ongoing, kind of pushing yourself out of your comfort zone continues to be kind of front and center. But thankfully, it's a space that fuels both of us, right. That we love that discomfort of, you know, kind of being vulnerable to say like, I don't know yet. Right. Let us figure it out. Let us ask 86 more questions right, until we feel comfortable and we can continue to process. But I think that's an important piece for listeners is like it, in terms of you showing up, we talk a lot about growth mindset, right. When we think about our B mindsets, there's an undertone of curiosity there. And Mike and I wouldn't be here talking about the book in this way if we didn't enact that. We weren't afraid mm -hmm. with our publisher, Wiley, to say, can we meet with all these people? Can we ask you 10 more questions? Can we understand what the process is? Can we, right? And so we just kept going, you know, deeper, layer by layer, because we wanted to know. Um, and there was so much we didn't know. Mm -hmm. And just building on that, like it's, you know, well said, Katie. And I think, you know, being, um, being vulnerable through the process and recognizing that we weren't subject matter experts was important. But, you know, one of the things Katie and I really, really talked about was, you know, we do have our PhDs in organizational learning and leadership. We could have very easily decided to put that on the book as kind of our credentials to kind of elevate the book and build ethos and credibility with the readers but we were intentional about not mentioning that because we also didn't want the book to come across as maybe too academic or not for mm -hmm. everybody. And we do think that there is a, um, there was an undertone of how do we make this widely accessible for, for all and for everybody. And so I think, uh, you know, we were vulnerable there because that is important that that was a journey we went on that we should be you know proud of. And, and we, we do use it in our both, you know, academic space and, you know, and, and work because people, you know, uh, look at that and say, well, you have subject matter expertise here, but we don't want people to read the book because of that, nor do we want to turn people away because, because of that. So. Yeah, I love that. And I think you guys have totally succeeded and you can really just see how deeply that, that perspective has kind of permeated your ethos, right? Like I think it, I mean, y'all would have been totally justified in putting your credentials front and center, right? In your campaign to promote this book. You spent a lot of your life force and your energy and your time, you know, achieving those degrees and everything that came along with it. But I love the fact that you guys operate from this place of it's not about us, Right. This book isn't to bring glory or recognition to us. It's for us to communicate a message to other people and to make it as accessible and as easy to digest as possible. Right. And in some ways, I find that mirrored also um, 
in the view of leadership that you're, that you describe in the book, right? You know, where it's, you know, we're not relying on positional leadership so much where it's like, follow me because I'm the boss, do what I say, right? It's, it's all about, um, like leadership as a, a much more kind of like holistic and like role-based process, you know, where the job of the leader is to, is to pollinate, is to empower, is to kind of raise the tide that like brings up all ships, you know, and that's very resonant with our beliefs here at Unity and Company. We believe in a framework that we call catalyst leadership, which is distinguished from management, where management is like overseeing the things that need to be done. And regular leadership is maybe galvanizing your team, you know, um, to kind of punch above their weight class. But a catalyst leader is a leader who um, just has a multiplicative impact impact throughout the entire organization because of how they choose to show up as a leader for their direct reports, as a teammate for their peers and in service to, you know, their superiors. Right. And, um, and so that was something that was like constantly in the back of my mind as I was kind of reading through a lot of the examples that the main protagonist in the book, Catherine kind of comes to an awareness of as she's, uh, kind of experiencing all these really powerful kind of micro lessons in her time on, on the farm, which is the central theme of the book. Um, so just wanted to say that like, I, uh, I feel deeply resonate, resonant with you guys and really just kind of take my hat off to you for just the heart and the spirit in which you're bringing this book and the concepts in it into the world. Thank you, Scott. I, I want to mention something there in terms of that catalyst leadership that, yeah. that I think is important for listeners to really kind of sink in. You know, you kind of glossed over, you know, that style, but they're like, I want to put a pin in that. So, so mm. important, really, that leadership is about influence. Mm. Right. And I think mm. sometimes people are put in positions. Right. And they call yeah. them leadership roles but they really don't effectively lead. But in many cases, right, as humans, we have to give ourselves permission when we're put mm. in roles to say, I'm put in this role, but I don't know everything. Mm -hmm. And so let's release ourselves of that expectation or burden and show up instead with growth mindset, with a curious mindset to say, I'm in this role to help the humans to be better, but I might have people on my team who know more than me, who could do it better than me, right? I watch Mike model this every day in his leadership style, right? And, and so we have to give people the permission around us to know more, right? And we're just helping support, remove, you know, removing obstacles out of their way, right? That we're continuing to learn with them. And so we have to remove that power distance when we think about, you know, leadership and that opportunity to encourage effective growth. Mm. I love that so much. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, Katie, not, not to riff on this for too long, but I can remember the exact moment in my career where I came to the realization that you just described. And it's really silly because, well, it happened early on. So I worked at Starbucks as a barista <laughs> um, as I was kind of like working my way through school, trying to, you know, um, trying to just get a little scratch money between classes. And I remember I was working, um, I was working the espresso bar back when Starbucks had manual espresso bars, right? So there was like some skill and physical labor required to pull a cup of coffee. And the general manager of the store came because it was really busy. She came out of the office in the back where she was like doing the books or something. 
and came out to work the bar with me. And, um, and I, you know, because I'd been cranking day in and day out, hundreds of cups of coffee was just like much faster and more efficient at it than she was. And I made some kind of comment just about, you know, like we had a pretty good friendly relationship just about how she's, you know, like slow. And it's like, how'd you get to be a manager if you're like, if you're, if you can't like pump out drinks fast enough to meet the the morning rush. And later she pulled me aside and she's like, what do you think my job is exactly? You know, and I was like, well, I think that you should basically be able to do everything that I can do, but better if you're the boss. And she's like, that's not my role here. (laughs) You know, she's like, my role is so much more than the quality of a cup of coffee that I can pull. Right. Like I'm in the trenches with you when I need to be. My job is to support you and to grow you and to mentor you and to teach you the things that you don't know that I know. But she's like, I'm also completely comfortable with you being better at things than I am, right? It's like, that's what it means to be a leader of a team. And I was like, I don't know, 20 or something at the time. And at the time, like that just blew my mind because my my vision of hierarchy was that with every step of additional responsibility, you have to be the top 1% of every subordinate step to get there. And what I found like later in my career after she opened my eyes to that is like the best leaders actually are the ones who aren't necessarily really great like at the things that their subordinates do or their expanded team does because it allows those people the room to shine, right? And really the leader's job is to um, is to inspire and empower and encourage, you know, and to break down barriers to allow your people to be the best that they can be. Oh, I love that you just said that. Be the best that you could be. <laughs> That's perfectly woven in there. <laughs> There's like a beekeeper 2.0 coming. <laughs> I have a tick sheet of all the bee analogies that we are like intentionally or unintentionally saying. Um, but yeah. I love that. I love that. But Scott, what you just said is really like the impetus of, you know, in the book, we ask readers to think about their bee mindsets and, mm. and, and leaders mm. really are about bee becoming beekeepers and not in the traditional form, but in the BE, right? Beekeepers. And so all those things is like that, those become lens check moments, right? So what we see depends mainly on what lens we choose. And from a leadership perspective, we could see leadership as a position of power, or we could choose the be mindsets, right? That we want to help other people be the best they could be, right? And we enact that, we create the space for that to happen. Um, But but that that's a personal choice. And so for readers, yes. we wanted readers to think about how they activate that agency in their life, right? Maybe you need to hit the pause button. And just as Catherine did, right? Unlearn some things that you had been doing where you were unintentionally standing in your way or in the way of your people, right? Yeah. Because her intentions were sound, but the impact on the team was not. And so how do we make small changes, right? In, in how we choose to be and then creating that culture to allow people to do that as well. Love that. Um, so what you're highlighting, Katie, is just one of dozens of great lessons in the book. Um, one that I really want to zero in on is this concept of being proximal. That's something that comes up a lot in the book. So I'd love to give you guys an opportunity to define for our listeners what is proximal and what does it have to do with leadership? Yeah, so I think when Katie and I were mapping out the story of the beekeeper, 
you know, proximal is, is an important word. A, it, it's, it's, you know, part of Katie's, uh, you know, in her consulting company um, name, it's part of her name. And, but really by definition, proximal means to the center, uh, towards closest to the heart. And, and medically it's used to talk about, you know, this is a proximal part of the body, um, meaning it's closest to the heart, closest to the center of the body. And so when we're thinking about flowers, there's proximal parts of the flowers. And, and really the, the whole impetus for it is that if, if you can place yourself as a individual or, you know, a leader at the center of someone's growth, then that is really what it means to, to be proximal. And if you can focus on really that core of like, what do people need to be successful, right? How can I place myself at the center of, of their journey and make sure they have everything they need to, you know, thrive themselves, you know, much like the, the beekeeper does for the hive. And that is really what it means to, to be proximal. And, and, and the, the message then, um, you know, for leadership is that, you know, and you guys illuminated it so beautifully a, a few seconds ago in the conversation is that it's not a hierarchy. It's not a hierarchy that we're looking for or looking to obtain in leadership. It's how do you place yourself at the center of someone's growth and organization's mm -hmm. growth and team's growth? And there's a number of different ways you, you can do that. So that was really kind of the, the concept of being proximal. But, you know, I'm sure, Katie, if you want to illuminate anything uh, additional. No, you said it perfectly. And, and Mike, there's also the encouragement that, you know, this is open for interpretation. So what does at the heart mean for you? How's mm -hmm. that different, right? Than what it might mean for Skylar, right? How's yeah. that different from, and, and we have to show up curious to find that out. Um, and that comes really in us being able to enact the platinum rule, right, is which is to treat others as they want to be treated. But we have to understand what being proximal means to those individuals. And it won't mean the same thing that it means to us. And we can't make the assumption, right, that people think the way we do or have the same needs that we do. Um, and, and so that's where I think in the book, we encourage readers to think about your own interpretation and then your own choices, right, for your own B mindsets and how you bring those to life. Mm. I really love that. I, there are a couple of things I wanted to highlight about what, what, what you all just said about just the necessity of being curious um, as a leader. And I think that that's such an astute observation because I think a lot of times you get to a certain point of positional authority and it's tempting to interpret that as I got here because I have the answers, because I am experienced, because people are looking to me to know, you know, everything. And you put a lot of pressure on yourself as a leader in, in that seat. Um, but almost ironically, the best leaders are the ones who admit from day zero, I don't have all the answers, <laughs> right? Um, and I'm going to adopt this attitude of curiosity to kind of figure out what the right answers are, not just on the whole, but for the individual. Right. And I think like that's, um, that's really important early on in the book. Um, you guys weave in a disc reference, um, which, uh, you know, for those of you who have not kind of like taken it, it's, um, what's the right way of, of describing it, Katie? Is it like psychometric behavioral style, like analysis? Yeah, per personality and behavioral assessment. Yep. Personality and behavioral assessment. Um, and I love assessments like that, the disc assessment and others, others like it just because, I feel like when teams and leaders start with an understanding of their own propensities and like the way that they kind of approach their work, 
and then couple that with a deep understanding of the people that they work with and how they bring their unique characteristics to the table, it really helps to foster this environment of um, curiosity and mutual appreciation, right? Um, for how are we going to work together in order to kind of accomplish this objective, right? And um, I think the leaders that lean into um, lean into that as kind of the first thing that they do when they're entering new teams are ultimately setting themselves up for a lot more success down the road because they're not only learning more about them in the context of the role that they find themselves in, but they're also learning how to strategically deploy, you know, the people around them so that you can truly kind of attack the problem and the objective as a team. Yeah. And Scott, you're bringing up, you know, an important element of uh, probably three of the tenets of emotional intelligence, right? That first, you know, leadership starts with you, heightened self-awareness. Who am I? How do I show up? What's my impact on others, right? How how do I view the world? What are my strengths? Um, But then going into that, you know, our our self-regulation, well, I probably shouldn't say that right now because that might not land well, right? And, and then the ability to have the social skills to be able to effectively communicate, thinking about the receiver, right, in the how. And so mm-hmm. that goes back to the platinum rule. What might make sense to me or the information I might want is not the information Mike wants, right? And when we think about DISC, Mike and I could not be further apart on the DISC map, right? And so how do we really use that to leverage work like this outputs, right? Where we can bring in and offset one another's strengths to think about, right? Looking full circle at how readers might receive messages and information. And that's a space of like in deep level diversity in organizations. If we really want to be inclusive leaders, we're thinking about surface and deep level and Mm. personality and behavioral attributes are your deep level diversity attributes that drive view, right? So we have to have awareness of us, but then to your point of others to make sure that we're effective, right? To align intention and impact so that we have that understanding and context. Did you always have that perspective? Because I know me personally, early in my career, I always wanted to kind of work with people that were more similar to me. And like you said, the diversity and inclusion mindset is, is actually acknowledging almost the opposite and saying like there are strengths to working with people that are different Mm -hmm. from you. Has there been a point like in your career past that you're like, Oh, this is a light bulb moment of actually the benefit of collaborating with other people that are different than me. So Mike, do you want to go first? Yeah. I mean, I think we gravitate Skylar to people who are are much more similar to us, you know, and, and have, um, you know, for, for validation reasons. And I I do think that if you look at a lot of the work on optimizing performance and, you know, high performing teams and, um, having, having the diversity of thought and voice and skill sets and personality just inherently builds stronger, stronger teams. So, I think probably mm-hmm. my perspective early on was similar to yours. And I think as you learn and grow and think about a growth mindset, you know, not you personally, but rhetorically, anybody who thinks about it should, should think about like building a team of, of, of talent that is much different than them, because that's how you create a, a winning high performing team. And, and not to say that bringing people on that are similar to you is not a good thing, but, um, you know, be mindful as, as you're recruiting and as you're, you know, building project teams that, do I have every voice and every type of personality represented here that can challenge the status quo and provide different insights? Um, and it's not like groupthink, you know, and that, that, that becomes a, that becomes a, a challenge, a challenge too. 
Um, and just really quick going back to something Scott said is like, I think having these assessments is really important in understanding yourself. Um, and, 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 and sometimes leaders read things about themselves that yeah, it's not too fun to hear and see, you know, and read about, you're like, Oh, this is how I show up. Like, this is what people think about me. And, um, it's easy to suppress that, right. And not talk about it. But I, I think the winning teams to your point are the managers and leaders and, and people who are leading teams and organizations that actually put that first thing, right. Like, these are the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Because we want our team to know that if I show up a certain way, I'm going to work to grow and, 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 and stretch and not, not do this. But if I do, like assume positive intent sometimes, you know, this is not my intention, but this may just be reflected in, in, in my natural tendencies. Um, and it's important to communicate that. So, so you can build that winning team and, and not have people think that you're, you know, dislike them or don't like working with them. And, so there's a, there's a lot to those assessments that um, can help drive, you know, optimal relationships across organizations and teams for sure. And Mike just said something so important when we're thinking about this is, um, you know, and so I talked about three of the tenets of emotional intelligence earlier, right? Self-awareness, um, self-regulation and social skills. But Mike just brought in the internal motivation piece that, you know, you could train people all day. You can give them awareness if they don't have the want the internal motivation to stretch and to say, wow, I didn't mean to offend you or I, I didn't, right. It won't happen. That's the one piece we can't train. Right. So no. we could give heightened awareness, but we're seeing right. Effective leaders are showing up the way Mike just said, I didn't realize that. Right. We have to have a conversation about it so that I could be better. Right. Cause this was my natural inclination, right. Or my intention, but it didn't land the way that I expected. And so let me just adjust my communication so that I'm mindful of you and how you're receiving the information instead of what makes sense to me. Oh. Um, that is such great insight. Um, it brings up to mind for me a quote that I'd heard, which goes something like, I might butcher it, but the amount of success that you are likely to achieve is directly proportional to the amount of truth that you can accept about yourself, right? And Katie, I think what you just said takes it a step further. It's not just that you accept the truth about yourself, but you lean into the necessity of change and growth in service of, I mean, ostensibly your objectives, but in the context of organizational leadership in service of the people that you are responsible for and entrusted with. Right. And I'm going to ask you guys a question, which I'm not sure if there's like a crisp answer for, but um, you mentioned that you can't teach or force a person to accept truth about themselves and, you know, um, make the decision to learn and grow. But I wonder if we as organizational leaders can influence it, right? Like sometimes I think like people are closed off to growth because their window of tolerance is so narrow, right? They live in their comfort zone and they can't really expand into the growth zone, maybe because of like some past traumas that they're working with or things that they haven't fully kind of like analyzed or worked out in themselves. But sometimes I think that there are organizational factors at play that make it difficult to be vulnerable. Like if an organization does not have an established foundation of trust and psychological safety, then admitting an area of growth can feel like 
an existential threat. It can feel like accepting a demerit that will find its way onto your performance review at the end of the year or that might eventually end up in a conversation about how you no longer work at the company anymore, right? And so I think it's like easier for leaders to lean into vulnerability and growth mindset, provided that the organizational foundation is a safe place for people to explore those parts of themselves. That's my perspective anyway. I'm interested to hear if you guys have like any like perspective or thoughts. Yeah, Scott, this was so well said. Um, And, you know, to bring it back to the book, Catherine did this right? In her emails to the team, she was almost giving them permission to start to be vulnerable. She was sending back learning moments, right? She went on a trip that she really didn't want to go on, right? She would have rather been at the spa, right? So she (laughs) went to a place, but inevitably ended up learning, right? And, And having these aha moments and sending it back that was having an impact on the culture. And so to your point, it does take right? Effective leadership to create that thriving hive. So when we talk about becoming a beekeeper, right? Beekeepers in the traditional sense, create a safe hive for the bees to thrive, right? To be able to do their job and pollinate. So their job is to clean out any waste, you know, things that will impact the the hive negatively, right? Keep it, um, you know, warm during the cold months, right? There's all of these things that the beekeeper does to preserve the safety of that space, Right. And so when we think about humans transferring, drop the second E to become a beekeeper, B-E, mm-hmm. it's about that. Right. How yeah. we look at the environment that we're yes. creating, that yeah. we can allow for deep level diversity. Right. Unapologetically and authentically to show up with your strengths, to be able to lean in, to say, well, I'm still learning that or I can, you know, kind of. Uh, think about language that I'm using and make some changes and be open with my people. Um, but to your point, culture matters, right? Uh, and and so I hope that the book encourages leaders to think about that, right? The environment that's created to allow this. That's so great. I hadn't made that connection before, but I think you're absolutely right. Like the environment creates that type of cohesion that we see in these bee populations. And um And it's so funny how we as humans, it's like bees know exactly what to do. Like they don't have to like take a class or like get a PhD (laughs) to like figure it out. Right. And even then we as humans like argue about the interpretations and the applications of it. But bees just kind of know it's like this is how you create an optimal environment. I love the part also, Katie, where you talk about the hexagonal shapes that like honeycombs like are designed on and how it's optimized on every dimension. It's optimized in terms of the amount of like honey it can hold and like the the structure so that you know the the colony can interact with it and do the things that they need to do and i'm just like man if, like what would happen if we just kind of like as humans got out of our own way <laughs> right like what tremendous things are we capable of if we just you know if we and just so I love it. that you pulled that piece out, you know, that we say like the brilliance of bees, right? Mm. That are natural mathematicians, right? Mm. To optimize the use of the space. 
but seemingly, you know, humans are that too. Mm-hmm. Um, and we get in our own way, right. By priming, right. Our self-talk, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the message that we're giving to ourselves, but then yeah. how we prime other people. If we think about, and I promise not to geek out too much, but even in the Pygmalion effect of like, Hey, I believe in you. These are the things I see in you that you don't see in yourself, yes. right. That allow people to kind of pull out that brilliance, right. To be able to optimize what they could do in the space they're given. Um, but that's us, that's up to us, right. To create that space and to have the awareness that that could exist. Yeah. I love that. Um, gosh, I could talk to you guys forever. Um, but I do have another question for you about the book. Um, so this is a spicier question. Um, but in the story, Catherine, um, who's the main protagonist of the book, she's a CEO. She goes on this vacation. We've alluded to it um, in our conversation so far. But while she's away, um, every day she spends time like still engaging at work and responding to emails. And, you know, if you look at the conventional wisdom about work-life balance, especially in the days of like quiet quitting, right? I think like there would be a mob of people saying like, no, when you disconnect from work, you have to absolutely disconnect from work. Emails are off, phone is off, you are unreachable, you are off the face of the planet, you know, you might as well be dead for that week or two, right? Um, And the team has to, you know, kind of do their own thing. Otherwise, you're not really disconnecting and you don't really have work-life balance. And I'm curious, like, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Is Was it a conscious decision for you to have your protagonist model this behavior that maybe goes against conventional uh, norms of like what disconnecting from work like really looks like. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it was, it was a, it was a really good conversation with Katie and I was writing the story about this, right? I think to your point, Scott, there is a lot of conventional wisdom that, you know, when you check out of work, you should check out of work and model the way for your employees. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Like that, that's true for a lot of people, right. That to set that model. But when Katie and I were talking about what Catherine was going to do, we kind of took the lens of, um, the platinum rule and she alluded to that, that a little bit, um, you know, earlier Kate, Kate, Katie did, but you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's kind of unlearning the golden rule, you know, which is doing mm. to others as, as you want to be treated, but right. it's doing to others as they want to be treated, you know, and, and that's important. So if, if, if you think about, you know, an employee, you're building a high performing team, you're building a, an organization, you've got a company you're running and, and someone is reaching out to you on vacation, right? Um, there's two ways you can look at that, right? You can look at it like, meh, I'm going to model the way and not respond and they'll figure it out. Or I'm going to engage with this individual because they obviously, especially from a, you know, the topic of like, you know, thinking about workplace therapy, they obviously have a need here, right? They obviously are looking for some solutions. They may have an issue they're dealing with. And for me to disengage there could negatively affect them and their performance and, and, and how they're collaborating with their teammates. And so it's kind of the responsibility of the leader to, you know, respect the diversity of how people want to work, um, and, and engage with them appropriately and, and kind of like honor the preferences of, of the team, um, versus kind of forcing expectations. Now I do think that, you know, there's an element there that if, if Catherine was, you know, sending a ton of emails and proactively sending a bunch of emails and, you know, answering things, I, I think there's a balance there. Um, but I think it, appropriately the way she was doing it was, just communicating some experiences and, and even on, even, even through the book, um, you know, she was very mindful of sending emails off work hours and setting emails to go out, you know, Monday morning as, as not disrupt weekend. So there's a mindfulness play there also. 
um, but then a respect of, of, of the human beings. And um, I, I think that that's kind of the interplay there that I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer, but if you think about the, the people on the receiving end and the people that you're working with, how to, how do they want to be communicated with and how are they going to how can we maximize their performance through, uh, through our interactions? So that was kind of the discussion and Katie, I'm sure you can, can comment too on, on kind of our, our back and forth on, on this topic. Yeah. And you said it so well, Mike, um, the, the, in terms of like the be mindset, Mike and I went on a kind of long discussion about, how societally, right. We're so quick to judge. Right. Mm. And so like you don't answer your email on vacation and you're a slacker and you don't care. You do answer and you're a workaholic and you, right. Like, so it's like, everybody's judging you no matter what you do until you hit the pause button and you say like, let's just give everyone permission to do what works for you. If you like to stay connected while you're away so that you don't feel the rush of, you know, a full inbox when you get back, do that. If that gives you peace, if you really need to unplug, right. But you're in a leadership position, you just need to be there for when your people need you like do that. But that's about you being present with your people, right. In understanding, but also being able to communicate what works for you that might be different from the person sitting next to you. And so we have to be able to create that space for people to do that. I think I'll I'll push back here a little bit because I think we we say like, oh, yeah, do whatever is best for you. But then when it comes time to the actual judging portion of performance reviews, because performance reviews (laughs) ultimately are judging, you know, your your ability and your performance at work that I've had situations where that aspect has been brought up. So do you have recommendations on organization? Like how can managers say, yes, do what works best for you, but then also not let that bias creep into the performance review process? I think, Skylar, what you're bringing up is what Scott, you know, alluded to earlier is like the health of the culture there. And so where we see disparities and these are in those organizations, you probably see high turnover, right? People who feel burned out, people who are not overly engaged. There's an undertone of fear, right? Of retaliation. And so we have to make sure that, you know, from a leadership perspective that we are enacting what we espouse to be important. So if the language is, I want you to have balance. And when you're on vacation, you can unplug. We need to enact those behaviors, right? To effectively do that. That's effective leadership where we see that disconnect, right? We see the impact on people and seemingly those people won't stay in role or be able to work in that environment for long periods of time. And so especially post pandemic, when we're looking at creating thriving hives, creating a space where you, your people stay, right? You have to make sure that what you're saying and what you do, what you're doing are in alignment. Yep. I think that's, that's such an important distinction, um, Katie and Skylar. I, I'm grateful to you for asking the question because I think this is one of those things that, does not work if you don't have an underlying foundation of psychological safety and trust and open communication, right? Because, you know, one of the things I was thinking about, you know, Katie, as I was reading that particular portion of the book was how as an organizational leader myself, sometimes things that get escalated to you while you're supposed to be unavailable are like truly show-stopping things that nobody could have predicted and only you have the right combination of like positional authority or relationships or whatever to grease the wheels and get the team unstuck. And for those situations, you absolutely have to be available. Otherwise, you know, the, the team is going to be jammed up until 
until you get back, which could be an extended period of time. But other times, like stuff that gets escalated to you is just really urgent to the person escalating it to you. And like, if they thought about it, there would have been other ways that they could self-serve and kind of, you know, recalibrate or reprioritize. Um, And there's this tendency for some to pay urgency forward um, as kind of like a knee-jerk reflexive response, right? And so I think... I think what you've said is actually, though, a, a really good antidote to that, which is like there, you're never going to get it right on the first swing, right? Like if you're an organizational leader and you're a C-level exec like, you know, like Catherine was um, or like a VP or even mid-senior level and you go out for a week or two vacation um, and people like escalate things to you while you're while you're away – if you have a foundation of trust and psychological safety and you have somebody who is urgently kind of putting things on your table um, that don't strictly need to be addressed right now, you know, you can engage in communication and calibration with that person, you know, without demoralizing them, without making them feel poorly about their decision, right? Like you can engage in the coaching and basically just say like, hey, you know, I sense that you have a high degree of urgency here. Let me just kind of talk to you about like where this falls in your prioritization matrix. Is this something that we can like put a pin in and kind of get back to in a week and a half? And so I, I guess for me, the example of what Catherine went to and how mindful she was about knowing herself, knowing that it brought her peace and a sense of organization and control to be able to stay on top of her emails and to be there for her team and how she took the time to like pre-schedule things that went out so that she's not setting an expectation that everybody has to be jacked in 24-7, but she's still making herself available. And to the extent that like people surface things to her that are not necessarily strictly urgent, you can have a like a conversation about that and calibrate over time so that you know, as the team continues to work together, all employing the platinum rule, you'll work in harmony and know how to best engage with each other when time off is a thing that needs to happen. Um, Anyway, so I think it was like, I really appreciated the example because I kind of had a visceral reaction to, um, to that piece the first time I read it. But as we've discussed it as a group, it's really kind of opened my mind to the fact that this is another one of those areas of leadership where it's all about curiosity and nuance and about like calibrating your ways of working to diverse like styles. Yeah, Scott, you're making me think about um, a conversation I had with a region manager who had an aha moment in culture um, in saying like, Katie, you're making me realize that every time someone on my team calls me, I'm quick to jump in to solve the problem because I looked at my role as that. But instead, we could create solutions focused teams. Right. And so that's also a space from a leadership perspective. And I think about this as a mom, like my kids don't come to me with every problem. If someone's hurt, right. And there's an issue, they need me. It's high. Come to me. But I don't resolve your conflict with your friends. You do that. You use your voice. You let me know how it goes. I'm here to support. Right. But we have to create a space where we we encourage action for people to be solutions focused and solve problems. And then we look at that level. Right. But we create that environment of allowing people, 
right? To be able to do that. And sometimes that's a, an unlearning moment, right? Like as a leader, oh my gosh, I'm solving everyone's problems. Cause I think that's part of my job, but no, you're not helping people grow in that space, yes, right? Yes. If they're continually coming to yes. you with all of their problems, right? And so we have to unlearn that behavior and create right difference in how we interact with one another too, which encourages that. Oh, I love that. And that's one of the hardest things for leaders to do is to kind of like let go. Yeah. Um, mentors said to me once, I will let you skin your knee, but I won't let you break your leg. Right. Uh, and it's all about, you know, it's like I need to give you enough runway to make mistakes because yeah. mistakes are a powerful teacher, but yeah. also for you to not make mistakes and to be, you know, to have the accomplishment and the experience of accomplishing something on your own and growing in your own self-confidence as a result. Um, but you can't do that without risk. Right. Like, um, so I think, uh, I think that's just such a powerful observation. Okay. I want to ask one last question before we go to lightning round. Um, so one of my favorite parts of the book was actually the be on the wall uh, perspective at the, uh, back at the company where you showed executives responding to their CEO's emails. And one of the executives was quite skeptical and even made fun of the, the whole B theme. And I've definitely seen this where leaders are resistant to change and they want to stick with like the status quo or a more jaded perspective. So what advice do you have for those leaders and, and for the teams of those leaders where it's even more of a bummer? So. Yeah. So I think this goes back to, um, you know, that deep level diversity. We talked about disc yeah. um, and understanding other styles. Right. And there are certain styles that are naturally questioning and skeptical. Right. It may, might mm. be slower. Right. To buy in or to to think about the change or they might need more information. And so that's really like allowing those who are embracing. And this happened behind the scenes. Right. We saw people saying, well, I, I don't really care what you say. I'm going to print that quote and I'm going to put it up on the wall. And so so when we start to do that and start to literally change the environment, it gives those people the opportunity, but it's also a space of allowing people permission to engage in change, right? Mm -hmm. We all move through change at different paces. There is a level of, you know, deep level diversity attributes, but also when we think about trauma, right? And how people might move through change. And so that's showing up with that curiosity to give people permission, right? Giving them the information that they need, right? But knowing it might be at a different pace than everyone else. And so we can't be quick to say, right? You're difficult to work with, you're resistant to, you're, right? We have to acknowledge, right? That that might happen at different paces. And mm -hmm. so that's why we saw, right? In the book that, that slow, slower than others. Right. But eventually kind of came around. And so, um, you know, there's a space of us just being present, um, with the difference of, of people too. Has, has there been a time in your career where you were the one who was a little bit resistant to change or slower to change? So I, I've, I've typically been on the other side, Skylar, where, um, I work in higher education in an environment that is slow to change. Um, and so I've been on the other side where maybe I've needed to slow down, right? Because I mm -hmm. love change. I love activity, the dynamic entrepreneurial push that it, for me, it's been the, okay, Katie, you have people who need more information, more time, more one-on-one -on -one space. And so for me, paying attention to that, um, to slow down has been, I think, more of the call for me. Mike, what about you? 
Yeah, I probably am on, on the same side. Like I'm, I'm more, um, lean towards the in, in innovation side and like, I enjoy change. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I like the challenges personally and organizationally, but I think Katie brings up a really good point that it, it there has to be a process for me, um, in place to make sure that change is successful. And I think, um, I think in the absence of a change process, then, then I don't want to uptake the change, right? Because I don't know a clear path forward and, 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 and a plan and how it's going to be executed. And, with lack of that, just knowing my, my, my personality style, then, then that's an uncomfortable spot for me. So I think there's a balance of, you know, resistance to change. And, and so even, even in the, the be on the wall perspective and in, in the, in the leadership guide to a thriving hive, yeah, perhaps, you know, what one can wonder if that it was a resistance to change or just not really seeing where it was going to get, um, you know, this person or Scott in, in the organization to, to, to make a change or, or Beatrice, right? Like, so how do you, it may, may take them a little longer to get there, but that, that's okay. Maybe they saw a path forward after a while, after seeing others model the behavior. And, and, um, so I think the change management process, a, a lesson learned here is, is, you know, if you're going to implement a, a big change, it's make sure, you know, especially from a workplace standpoint, not everybody's going to go along that same journey as fast as you. So make sure there's a good process. Otherwise there could be people who don't feel supported in the company and don't feel like they have, uh, you know, this is right for them and it could really impact the workplace significantly. Hmm. I love that. I mean, Skylar and I actually recorded a podcast episode. It hasn't gone live yet, but it's on change management. <laughs> and, um, one of the, one of the interesting things that she brings up in that episode is how, um, the change management process actually very closely mirrors the stages of grief, <laughs> You know, and like, because in a way you are grieving the death of the old way of doing things. And I think where a lot of organizational leaders um, find themselves struggling to create space for people to go through those grief stages and finally reach that point of acceptance, it's because as leaders of change, we've been incubating and thinking about change for months before it's time to roll it out or announce it to the rest of the organization, right? So we've already reached acceptance. We're post-acceptance. We're at like implementation. Like we accepted it a long time ago, started drawing up plans, and now we know what it looks like, you know, in uh, production. But for the vast majority of people that are going to be impacted by that change, Sometimes organizations read them in way too late and don't intentionally create forums to create space for people to vocalize their perspectives or maybe be a part of authoring the change and eventually be an emissary of change when it comes time to actually implement it. So I think it's like, I love this idea of the platinum rule, right? Like treating other people the way that they would want to be treated. And I love how it just touches every fundamental like leadership responsibility that we've talked about thus far. It's like really envisioning with empathy, the perspective of the people that are going to be impacted by the things that you are driving and using an individualized approach to really kind of like get them on board and work as a team, um, which I think is super powerful. And Scott, you just illuminate on something really important, right? You brought in the fifth component of emotional intelligence, empathy, right? Which we need that mm. we have to show up listening to understand instead of listening to respond. But mm. when we navigate change, 
change isn't about the tasks and the structures. It's the human beings that you need to bring along. And so to your point, it's easy to lose sight of that, right? That we have to bring the humans along with us through change in order for the change to stick, right? And so it sounds so obvious, but in so many ways, people just forget, right? The impact or to your point, the grieving process of humans, right? As we navigate that and we'll all do it in different ways. Love that. Well, now's the fun part um, of the podcast, which is our lightning round. So the lightning round rules are simple. Skylar's going to ask you each um, a series of questions. Those questions uh, will be work-related and some of them won't be work-related. They'll just be life-related, but you have 30 seconds to answer off the cuff and we get to learn a little bit more about you. So ready, go. Well, I'm actually going to diverge from one of them and add a a beekeeper special lightning round question, which inspired by the book, because one of the executives, they are kind of asking her to be a a little bit more vulnerable because she's usually not. And she shows that she's actually really great at calligraphy and nobody knew this about her at work. So I guess the first question is, is there something, a special skill or something that usually you don't bring into your professional sense that you want to share out now? That's, that's a good one. A special skill that I bring out. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I, I think that I, I do have a, like a funny bone. I'm a little humorous, but I don't like to show that. So, I mean, like, would like you do like stand up comedy yeah, or maybe, maybe not like full stand up comedy? But <laughs> I try to be, I'm more of a private person, but I think that that would be the skill that I, you know, would be, if I was to demonstrate vulnerability, that would probably have to be it. Love it. <laughs> Katie. Yeah, I love that. Um, I think, you know, you made me think about um, chess, right? So Mm -hmm. I uh, started playing chess a couple years ago, but I play chess in my online app every day, even if it's just one move. I think though it helps me in my workspace. I don't talk about it in my workspace, but in just my thinking, right? In my moves, right? How one move impacts another and to kind of be able to think ahead and strategy. Um, and so I think something that's just become part of my day, um, but you know, doesn't necessarily bleed into the workspace. Hmm. Love it. Okay, back to the original questions. So <laughs> who is the leader that you look up to and why? You wanna take this one, Kay? Yeah, I'm going to say my girls. Um, it, it's an interesting space for me as a mom. Um, you know, being a mom is my favorite role in the world. I think about how I model, you know, uh, the way for, for my girls. But I look at them as young leaders, uh, making tough decisions, uh, using their voice, uh, navigating conflict, um, you know, and really in that space of self-efficacy of them believing in themselves and believing in their voice. And I watch them do this every day. It like moves me to tears. Um, but something super remarkable that we don't give people permission to be leaders oftentimes until they have a role or they're in a position. Mm. Um, but very much I look at, you know, my nine and 11 year old, I'm like just super amazed at, you know, how they lead and kind of lean into the vulnerabilities of life. Yeah, it was, you know, I was, I was wrestling with like, you know, I was trying to think of work or sports teams or anything that I've, I've done in the past, but really, you know, to, to Katie's point, I mean, if you think about the role of a leader, we talked about it a lot. I mean, it's, I'd have to go like my parents, you know, they said, said a lot of, you know, just real foundational skills that allowed me to be successful. And that's really, and if you think about leadership, like that's what it is inherently. So, um, you know, probably mom and dad, you know? Yeah. 
That's great. Love it. All right, Mike, we'll start with you on this one again. So what is your bucket list vacation destination? Australia. <laughs> I was like, the, the farm? No, not the farm. <laughs> no, yeah, the farm would be awesome if that existed. What is it about? Hold on. I know that it's supposed to be off the cuff, but I'm curious because Australia terrifies me because mm. there are so many things that can just kill you in all yeah. forms. So what what are you looking forward to the I mean, most? I just I just think it's 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 a beautiful country, right, Con? And it's, 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 it's amazing. I mean, I feel like it's so far that I would probably never get there. So that's what I'm considering like a bucket list item. But mm. yeah, I mean, just the beauty. I've had friends that have worked at our company who, you know, from areas like Perth and have talked about the hiking and, and the things out there. And, and I do enjoy that. So thought it would be a really cool mm. experience to take. Uh, yeah, it does terrify me too a little bit, but you're braver than the me. animals. Although, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I do live in Arizona. So there are a fair number of things yeah. that can kill me here too. So. <laughs> <laughs> Katie, what about you? So for me, it's Santorini. Um, and this really came from, I had a hairstylist, you know, probably 10 years ago who was from Greece. And, you know, we were sitting one time and I was talking about how I just love the feel of islands. And she was like, you have to go to my island. And she introduced me right to Santorini at the time. And so I've been reading about it. Two years ago, my daughter did a report for school on Santorini, Greece, right? So it's just like on our bucket list is a place that we would just love to go visit. So hopefully you I'll check that have. off the bucket list soon though. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have to go. <laughs> have you been there? No, I haven't, oh, but definitely want to, but yeah. it sounds like family, family oh. vacation would oh, be fun. Oh my Okay. And next one, Mike, we can start with you again for the comedian perspective. So mm. tell us about like the funniest or more most awkward time that you've had in the workplace. Just, this is hard. I mean, I think that probably, I don't think anybody saw this, but you know, they like changed all the walls to like be glass walls and some of the, the like huddle rooms. And yeah, I, I do remember, um, inadvertently like turning quickly and walking into a wall, but thank God nobody, nobody saw, you know, the, the Windex. <laughs> you think nobody saw it. Yeah. I think <laughs> nobody saw it. <laughs> so that was awkward for me, but, uh, not awkward around people. So. Mike, if it makes you feel any better, that's not the first time we've heard that. Actually. <laughs> okay, there you Except go. the first person to bring it up, it wasn't her that ran into the glass wall. It was Al Gore. Oh, really? Yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> and she just happened to have been working with them on something. That's oh, that's hilarious. Pretty funny, but a common one. Yes. So mine is a awkward moment, but maybe students on the college campus found it funny. Um, Scott, you mentioned this in the opening that I work for a university that's the sixth oldest college in America. So we have like cobblestone sidewalks and I wear heels um, mm. every day <laughs> in heels. And so I have many times walked out of my heel because it gets stuck in the cobblestone. Right. So like I'm walking and my heel is like still behind. Right. So it's like, I have to circle around and come back, but it's become just like a thing, right. That like that, that happens to me. People will see that happen often. Um, but certainly awkward moments the first few times it happened. Love it. I would, yeah, just go barefoot at that point. <laughs> I press on. Uh, what is the most useful non-work related app that you have on your phone? Yeah, for me, it's FaceTime. I think that's an app, right? Like, I mean, I travel a lot. I mean, if you can't see my family, I mean, that's, uh, that'd be, that'd be hard. So I would say FaceTime. That's a good one, Mike. I, I'm going to say two. So I, I think first, like the new chess with friends again, like I wake up, I like to make a move, right. I look forward to that kind of just, you know, thought of the game. Um, but another one has been Snapchat for me. 
Um, it's the way that my niece and my nephew and my girls communicate with me. Um, and so, you know, when my kids are with friends, they're sending me snaps of their funny faces and what they're doing. And so it's like a fun way of connecting, um, that, you know, doesn't feel like you're writing anything formal or, you know, something that's like too scripted. What's the most important thing that you've done to invest in your own mental health? Similar to Mike, I'm an early riser, get my workout in before everybody wakes up. But something that's been really helpful for my overall well-being was actually work that was encouraged by Sean Aker's uh, book, The Happiness Advantage, probably about 10 years ago. I was creating a, a freshman seminar using this book. Um, it was called Punctuating Happiness. And one of the, the uh, prompts in the book was about how we start our day. And so it primed you to think about starting your day with three gratitudes. And I was at the time of like lots of career change, new mom, like kind of feeling just overwhelmed with like who I was and, you know, like kind of having authority over my life. And so I started to make these changes of like, I wake up like morning gratitudes. I'm mindful too, from that book that what we see from the moment we wake up stays with us for six hours later. And so like, I don't watch, if I put TV on, it's not news, it's not anything violent, it's not right because that's how you start and then emotional contagion creeps in that you impact every single person you touch throughout the day um, and so that's been something that's just stuck with me I just naturally do that you know morning you know gratitudes workout kind of priming myself for the day um, but really came from you know Sean Aker's work and the happiness advantage I had no idea that it stuck with you for six hours later. That's crazy. Yep. I know. That's, that's my pro tip. I'm like, yeah. there's so many, there's <laughs> there so many days that have gone downhill that I, <laughs> yeah. I could have been retrospect completely avoided. Unfollow <laughs> those things on Instagram. Yeah, right? Absolutely. Or just don't yeah. look at your phone first thing. Yeah. That's what yeah. my thing is. Like, that's the first thing I do is check all my notifications. And there are definitely days where I should not do that. Yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> All right. What's your biggest pet peeve? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I have a couple of pet peeves, but I think like what bothers me is like when you see people, I try to teach my kids this, I guess, but like you go to the grocery and like people just leave their carts around. That's so annoying. Like they, there's a little spot for them and you just can put it in the spot versus like leave it in front of the parking space where someone else has to get out and move it. It's super annoying. Amen to that one, Mike. That's Amen. A good one. But mine is when the toilet paper rolls from under. Um, it needs to be over. Like I've been called out on this at people's houses. They're like, did you like flip my toilet paper? I was like, I totally did. Like I can't go in there and do the roll under. So I just like flipped it around as it come from the top. So is there like a sanitary? I don't even know. I, I've heard people on on both ends of the spectrum that are, you know, very passionate about the toilet paper. So yeah, I guess it's just preference. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know why it's a pet peeve. I haven't there's, gotten into that. There's okay. Look, I, I'm not generally into conspiracy theories, but I came across one that I've not validated on the internet, but I just tend to think is true. So what I've heard about the over-under as it pertains to toilet paper is that if you orient it one way versus another, one way, it's naturally easier to get more toilet paper, right? And ah. I think it's the overhand way, which is the 
codified correct way to do it. Like if you look in hospitality, they will put it on the over um, versus the under. And I guess what the under will do because of the tension of like the role, you know, and the physics of it, it will basically like, you know, rip off a piece like sooner than you intend to versus the overhand way has less resistance and you can get more. And so the conspiracy theory part is that, you know, big toilet paper wanted you to adopt the way that would have you consume more. And so they went on a push to make that normative in our society. So I don't know if it goes that far, but I do, I do believe the physics of like, Hey, one way gets more toilet paper, but I anecdotally know that that is true. You just made me think about those, Scott. I think another pet peeve is where you see the little pieces of toilet paper, like all over the floor from people like ripping and just leaving it. I'm like, Oh my gosh, why would you leave this mess? Right. It must've been under. That's like, that's like the shopping cart example. It's like, you know, that's your moral litmus test. It's like, are you the kind of person who just leaves stuff for people to clean up or pick it up exactly uh, yeah i love those some big toilet paper i've never known that they had such influence over my life but they do oh, <laughs> so funny all right uh what piece of literature or art has most shaped your perspective on life yeah so i um starry night um is like i had this in my bedroom growing up right? i have the painting here i was just thinking about i spent the weekend i had um, dinner with my best friend um and when we were younger like we we often used symbols right and mine was always the star and hers was like the lightning rod and we were actually talking about that this weekend but starry night really you know, the impetus of the painting is about hope. Um, and so I have a draw, I think like to the stars, to the star visual, right. To thinking about, you know, what that means. So something that I think certainly fuels me, um, you know, in a personal way. Did you get to see it in person? No, oh, I go. haven't. Gotta I go. know. I have it. Maybe bucket list. <laughs> I should add that to my bucket list. <laughs> yeah. Gotta make your way to New York. Mike, what about you? We're talking about uh, literature. And so I was thinking about a book. Um, it's actually like a short story, probably from, I don't know, ninth grade, eighth grade. Um, it's the gift of the Magi. You guys familiar with that story? And I feel like I got it. It's by O. Henry. And it's like basically a husband and wife. And um, the, the, the wife has beautiful long hair. She was trying to buy a Christmas gift for her husband uh, who has a nice watch. And she wanted to buy a, a little chain for his watch. And uh, he didn't have any money either, and he wanted to get her a gift. So it turns out, I'm giving the story away, but you should all read it. But um, it turns out that she sold her hair to buy him a, a band for his watch, and he sold his watch to buy her some combs for her hair. And they both, it was just, it's just, it just kind of demonstrates like a little bit of ser like servitude and caring about people. And um, it was always resonated with me because I think that that's kind of like I've tried to, to live my life, you know. Yeah, definitely have to read that. Yeah. All right. Last question. Uh, Katie, we'll start with you. What is your mission in life? So I, I use a model of um, recognize, reflect, connect, right? It's kind of like my mental model. I use it in curriculum, <laughs> curriculum design. I, so when I think about my mission, right, and how I want to show up, um, there is a recognize like what I give my time and energy to 
right? So what you give your time and energy to grows. And so I must recognize that I'm intentional as a mom, as a friend, as a colleague, right? As a wife, as a sister, a daughter, right? That I'm giving my time and energy to things that I want to grow. Um, and then in the reflect, right? How I choose to interact with and see the world. And I get to choose that. Right. And so in that reflection, that's in like my morning gratitudes of just like, let me reflect on how I could see this different, how I could show up different. And then the connect piece is is kind of the be proximal state. It's like at the heart of connection. Um, and so when I think about connection is actually one of my core values as well. And so when I think about my mission, I want to enact that as I'm, you know, interacting with people and I'm mindful of how I make people feel after an interaction with me. I, th I think my mission and, and kind of like what I think about in life, like life's purpose is just to, you know, be a, be a good human being. I mean, I'm learning, you know, to be better at, at being kind and understanding others and trying to demonstrate a little servant leadership and, you know, being a good, you know, father and friend. And, um, I think that ultimately is, is kind of like how I'm starting to view life, uh, you know, as, as I kind of grow and get, and get older. Um, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, it's, uh, certainly important. Love it. Well, thank you guys just so much for your time and sharing your wisdom. I know that I've learned a ton um, from both reading the book and then discussing it with you both. Um, and so just really, really grateful that you've invested this time um, for us. And I'm really excited for how our listeners will benefit from it. Now, if our listeners want to purchase your book um, and or connect with you to learn more, what's the best way for them to do that? I think, um, you know, our, our books located at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, you know, all retailers, um, you know, online, it's probably the best way to get it. And, um, you know, Katie and I created a, you know, a website called leadership fables. Um, and you can connect with us there on LinkedIn or any of our social media channels and follow us along on, on Instagram. And you know, we're doing our best to, to put content out, to keep everybody engaged. And, um, that's probably the best way is, is social media. Mm-hmm. We'd love to connect. Yeah. Great. And we'll go ahead and put that in our show notes as well. You can access this episode at workplacetherapy.net. Um, so that about wraps up um, the time for today's session. Um, if you guys like this content and want to see more of it, you can reach out to us at info at workplacetherapy.net. Mm -hmm.